Welcome to CPP Chat, an N weekly look at what's going on in the world of C++, chatting with guests from the community. And now, for your security, John has a disclaimer to read. Thank you very much, Phil. We hope that our security systems provide some deterrence to crime. However, the association can never be crime-free. For example, it is possible for someone to enter the property under false pretenses to commit crimes, for residents to commit crimes against their own neighbors, for guests of residents to commit crimes, and for employees to commit crimes. As a result, the association cannot guarantee your security. You should not rely on the association to protect you from loss or harm. You should provide for your own security by keeping your doors locked, refusing to open doors to strangers, asking workmen for identification, installing a security system, carrying insurance, etc. All right. So this obviously was a tribute to uh, our guest, uh, Patricia, who has made a name for herself talking about uh, security issues. How are you doing, Patricia? I'm doing great. Thank you very much, John. So uh, you guys have something in common for the last week, right? Yeah, we are both in Norway at the moment, just outside Oslo. Uh, maybe, Patricia, you want to say a bit more? Yeah, we're at NDC Tech Town in Kongsberg, so uh, about an hour and a half outside of Oslo, uh, and uh, just wrapping up uh, the conference uh, just a few hours ago. I don't know about you, uh, Patricia, but uh, I'm I'm really tired after this week. I had a, a two-day course uh, and then I had to do uh, another talk as well. So I uh, don't know what you've been up to. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty exhausted. I did. I also taught a two-day course and then I uh, did the keynote. And then I had a, a talk today as well. And so. And I think you're missing something. You, you also hosted a meetup as well. Oh, yes. And I forgot the meetup. Yes. And I hosted a meetup. <laughs> With Jason, and it was awesome in a panel. Yes. So the organizers are squeezing you for everything they can, and, and as a, yes. as a conference organizer, I applaud that. <laughs> if your speakers, I'm definitely working for my my ticket here. That's right. If your if your speakers don't go home exhausted, you haven't done your job as an organizer. <laughs> yes. I was I was actually in Oslo just a few weeks ago, uh, but that was entirely oh, really? unrelated to technology. My wife and I did a uh, a cruise up the norwegian coast ah. well you know we've we've always been told you should do that sometime if you can afford it oh. hey I, I gotta i gotta compete with phil in the pun department that's that's <laughs> tough that's asking a lot no way a <laughs> oh. slow beating oh man all right so um uh yeah so so it's it's been a great conference is this your first time at uh, tech town no, no. I've been here every year since they started. Well, every year. It's not that many years. It's only three years. So this is the third year. Uh, but yeah, now Olva, who, who, Olva Maldal, who is, um, the content director uh-huh. or whatever. Uh-huh. I don't know if this is his title. Uh, he, uh, he pulled me into the agenda committee on the first year. So, uh, it's, it's very nice to have a C++ conference, which is, uh, uh, in Norway, because we've we haven't really had that before. Well, let me ask you a question. I have to, I have to ask this question: Is it a C plus plus conference or not? Doesn't say it's C plus plus. It says tech. Yes. It's called Tech Town because uh, the, the 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 city uh, the Kongsberg is called Technologi Bien. Uh, so that's in Norwegian. It basically means technology town. And so, so the name kind of comes from the place, uh-huh. but yes, it is definitely a C plus plus conference, uh, and uh, with uh, with some some like added material for embedded um, and for yeah 
So, and security, but, but the main content is definitely C++. Well, that's the way it should be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so three years. Yeah. Okay. Has it, uh, has it evolved in that time or is it mainly just the same thing, more intense? Well, it has evolved uh, a little bit, but it's still quite small. Like, well, it depends on your scale. I, I don't know how many attendees does CppCon have? Well, um, we're, uh, we're a little bit under uh, under our projection this year, so I don't think we'll make fifteen hundred. Yeah, um, we were we were on our way to it, and then in the last month, things. Uh, I, I think what's happened, it was a little bit of a surprise to me, is when the hotel full filled, we stopped getting registrations, or at least oh. I shouldn't say stopped, but it slowed down. Yeah. That was kind of a surprise because in Bellevue, when our hotel block's all full, we still got people coming. Yeah. They couldn't stay in an official hotel, but there were other places they could stay. Yeah. And that was good enough for That's them. That's true. But apparently this year, because we are in a particular hotel, if, if people can't get in that hotel, then they say, well, I guess I can't go. Oh. Which is really weird to me. It's like, well, in Bellevue, you're willing to, mm. you know, take a ride into the conference, yeah. but in Aspen, you're not willing, or I mean, in, in um, Aurora, you're not willing to do that. So it seems strange to me, but. Yeah. But we'll just have to deal with that. Yeah. yeah. So no, and and, and uh, yeah, no. So we we're smaller. Like I, I would guess, I haven't checked, uh, but I would say we're like maybe three, four hundred okay. attendees. Uh, but it's still like it's uh, this year. It was uh, five tracks. Okay. So that's quite yes, nice. That, so you have a lot of options. That's a good and size uh, yes. uh, yeah. And the rooms are all packed. Yeah. So it's a two day conference and two days training. Uh, and then around four, yeah, I would say maybe 400 people attendees. Okay. So I came this year and I um, came the first year. I didn't come last year. Mm-hmm. So I, I noticed a bigger delta and uh, it's definitely much bigger than it was the, the first mm-hmm. year. Yeah. I guess for me, it's like it's grown like slowly. So I don't see it as much, but but it is, it's still very intimate uh, conference uh, because you have, you have a lot of speakers and then you have not that many attendees. So it becomes very, all of the speakers are very accessible to talk to. Uh, and yeah, so like a little bit like on at CPP on C as well, because it, it gets, it becomes a little bit intimate when it's smaller. Uh, so that's nice. I like it. Um, but I also like that it's in Norway, so I don't have to travel so much. <laughs> well, that's more of an advantage for some people than for others. Yeah, no, I'm sure. I'm sure anyone who lives really close to CPPCon really likes the fact that CPPCon is close. Right. Um, so, Phil, you did a, you did a class there. You did. Is it the the same course you're doing for CPPCon on uh, test driven development? It is. Yeah. So anyone that didn't make it to to this one has another chance in in Colorado in uh, well a couple of weeks. Yeah, going to be the workshops. <laughs> Very close. Uh, get that registration yeah. in. The uh, there's still um, still room for uh, class. You know, at the new venue, we've got a lot of space, so I don't think any of our classes are in danger of selling out. That's that's bad marketing. I should say get that registration in because we're going to sell out. But the truth <laughs> is, um, we just. We have the space, um, so we want to have uh, we want to have people show up for the classes if at all possible. I, I would say, you know, prove John wrong. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, I, I've spoken to several attendees in in Phil's class, and they said it was really excellent. So I'll, I'll pass that along. That's money well spent uh, paying them. Then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so you did a keynote, you did a meetup, and you did a 
uh, and you did a talk. So tell us a little bit about what you presented this week. Oh, wow. Yeah. The, the two day, uh, training I did is, uh, a training I call insecurity in C++. <laughs> so it's basically scaring people for two days. No. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Yes. Um, I think I that think that's so, that's pretty low bar. You talk about C plus plus; it's pretty easy to scare people. Okay, yes. and we're going to go over the overloading rules. And <laughs> it's only a twelve day oh, course, oh, yeah. so we oh, can cover most of the overloading conversions. Rules. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's oh yeah. There's we spent like the whole first day was mostly talking about numbers and all the strange things you could do about numbers and. Uh, <laughs> But but the second day they wrote shell code and they also tried to bypass checks in code and yeah so they they've um, but I basically one of the things I wanted to make sure is that everybody realizes how how C is vulnerable in many situations but also that a lot of the things that make C code safer are things that make C code better. Anyway, things that you want to do to reduce uh, bugs, because a lot of these things that are security issues are things that we normally think of as bugs. And so a lot of the same techniques that you, you would use to, uh, to uh, increase the quality of your code and, and also a lot of tooling that people should just use, like, like sanitizers and, and, um, and, and tests and uh, warnings and right. all sorts of things. And uh, yeah, a lot, of, so, a lot uh, of security vulnerabilities are essentially attacking the corner cases yeah and uh we have we have corners yeah quality code uh either has fewer corners by design which uh which you can often do Uh, i think one of the one of the cool things about if you look at how algorithms are often developed um there aren't special cases for edge cases it's just defined in such a way that the that the edge case handles itself and and I think that's beautiful because when you try to put in special code for the edge case, then you have the edge case between the edge case and the normal case. Yeah. So now you have another edge case. <laughs> you know, you have this infinite loop of adding in one little patch to cover this part, right? So, uh, yeah. But yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I, I'm not I'm not an authority in security, but this does seem to be a theme overall. Is that yeah. the security vulnerabilities attached and is trying to attack a particular edge case. Yeah, and and very often what you see is that uh, there's a higher density of vulnerabilities in code that doesn't run often. So often in error situations, uh, things like that, and that's that's often code that we don't test very well because we test all of the the correct situations and and all of the semi-correct situations, but then we have error code paths that we hardly ever exercise, and so often you will find and 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 this is true for bugs as well. You will find a higher density of bugs and code that hardly ever runs because people are not exercising it as much. And they may not have thought about it as much when they originally wrote it because it's like, well, okay, yeah. we kind of have to deal with the error situation, but but it won't happen often. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so you see that. So in error, so, so in some code that only runs infrequently, you'll see more vulnerabilities, but also in complex code, like people will write really complex loops, uh, especially using pointers, very high risk of vulnerabilities in this code. But we know already it's code that is really hard to reason about. And so, so, uh, so I'm basically a lot of the training is, is motivating people to write cleaner code, uh, for security as well, not just for just for maintainability. But a lot of the things that give more maintainable and more understandable code is also going to make the code safer. So so if you want to upgrade the quality of your code, the way to pitch this to management is that it makes it more secure. Give us time yeah. 
to do a quality audit on our code, but we'll call it a security yeah. audit instead of a quality audit. And instead, we'll just try to upgrade yeah. the overall quality of our code, but we'll tell them that it's about security. Definitely. Because really, it's both, right? It is. A it higher, is. Higher quality code is more secure, and more secure code tends to be higher quality. Yes. Because the way you made it more secure was by getting the bugs out. Yes. So, so uh, instead of writing custom loops for things, use an algorithm if you can. Using modern uh, C++, um, replacing uh, like uh, explicit new and delete by using unique pointers, having explicit control of your lifetimes uh, so that you, you uh, don't have a use after freeze or, or double freeze. Um, all of these things that w- that we consider to just be that's just good code exactly just good code. but those are the same kinds of things that will will uh, will fix um, fix vulnerabilities in your code and funny enough all of these were themes that came up in my <laughs> cdd class as well. it's all of a piece it's just how you're looking at it right yeah yeah yes, yeah. yeah yeah you know i uh, speaking of classes i was going to say matthew butler is doing a, a security class at cppcon and I didn't think about it, but the name he picked for it was something like exploiting C++. And, of course, he's not really teaching people how to exploit C++. He's teaching people how to write code that can't be exploited, right? Yeah. So I, I thought that was obvious. And yet one of the interesting things about it is that that the class was really popular among our volunteers because we allow volunteers to go to classes mm. under a special discount. And it was a really popular class among young people. And it was like, they know you're not really teaching how to do exploits, right? You're not, you're not really teaching people how to. <laughs> so I was teasing him about that. Uh, but, but that's one of the things he was saying as well. He was saying, no, we're really just teaching people how to write good code. There, there's no yeah. secret to security. The secret is yeah. write really good code and, uh, you know, yeah. And, and, and the, the tooling as well. We've gotten so much good tools, especially yeah. uh, with, Clang, uh, and then afterwards, like other compilers being inspired by, by that. So all of like, so, so one of the things that I'm seeing is that projects that already had really good code coverage now can use those tests and run them with sanitizers uh, and find things. And that's what, that's what security researchers do as well. They'll take your project if it's open source and they will modify all of your builds, uh, to, to run and run all of your tests. Uh, with sanitizers on, then they'll use your own tests to to as input to fuzzing frameworks, and they'll use the fuzzing frameworks with sanitizers and try to find bugs. I mean, these are things that you can do in your own project, right? right. These and right, and right. they and often they build re- really complex tooling around your specific product, uh, which you which if you had it yourself, this could be in your continuous uh, integration pipeline. This could be something that just ran. Right. 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 Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm shocked at the number of companies that are. I mean, a small shop can't afford something like Coverity. Coverity is kind of expensive tool. Yeah. But a large shop that doesn't have Coverity on a continuous build kind of situation, to me, is is. I don't see how you could be talking about you know secure code if you're not doing that. I mean, that's just such yeah. a no brainer. It's gonna it's gonna be an investment in both time and money to set up. But having done that. 
it's just going to reap rewards going forward. Yeah. How could you not? But do the that? thing is, we even like the free tools are getting really good. Yeah. Uh, so, so like, so just if you're a small shop, like just having, having one, one, uh, one part of your continuous integration, just running your own tests, but with, uh, with address sanitizer on, uh, or, uh, having CPP check or even like, uh, I, I, I don't want to do, uh, advertising for your company, <laughs> uh, Phil, but, but a lot of, of IDs like Sea Lion have integrated a lot of these tools in the IDE. So you could just get a little red squiggly uh, under things that that would normally have to wait until compile time. So so just getting as much tooling as you can and pushing it as close to the developer as you can so they can get that immediate feedback and 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 I think is super important. And just to be clear, oh, I don't mind at all if you advertise C-Line. <laughs> I was going to say, we have a policy on this show that we're okay with advocating for JetBrains, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but also, you've you partially answered um, the, oh. a question in the chat, actually, uh, asking about best practices to find the not well-tested and complex code. So you, you talked yes. about fuzz testing and and uh, code coverage. But uh, just to throw in as well, um, property-based testing yeah, and, and approval testing to some extent, although there's a slightly different focus, uh, are um, together with fuzz testing. They're, they're the things I was talking about in my, my workshop yeah. uh, for exactly that question. And if uh, Bringing that back to TDD, TDD doesn't get to those things. TDD gets to the things that you did think of. So you need all yeah. those testing practices that get yeah. to the things you didn't. And that that's the thing that we, doing. that's usually where our testing is lacking. Uh, we're good at, like you said, it's like we make tests for the things that we think of. Uh, but what, what the security researchers are looking for is is the things that we didn't think of and and they can do that with things like like fuzzing and fuzzing is uh, if if you haven't looked into it uh, as a technology as a nerd i would definitely uh, look at it because there are so much cool things that are happening uh, and 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 the way it's developing they're making grammar based fuzzing so they'll 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 specify the grammar for your apis to be able to actually pass the pass parsing stage of whatever you're using to parse and actually and they do coverage based fuzzing so they will actually measure how much of your code they are managing to reach with their fuzzing and then they're using uh using like evolution on that so they will see okay with i did a mutation on this on this uh input did i reach more code did i reach code that i don't reach normally okay then i will keep that and i will continue to mutate that it's like there is so much cool things that are being done within fuzzing frameworks so definitely something uh that is interesting even if you're just curious to go after the things that um you know the the challenge the challenge with programming and there's no aspect of programming by itself that's hard. The challenge of programming is that you have to deal with all the aspects at the same time. Yeah. In other words, I look at this code and I have to make certain that I'm you know clean for Unicode. I have to make certain that I don't leak. I have to make certain that I'm exception safe. I have to make sure that I'm reentrant. I have to make sure all of these things. Any one of which I can look at that and and answer the question yes. I was thinking about that when I wrote this code, and so the code is really going to be re-entry clean. But because I was focusing on that, I didn't think too much about, you know, it, it, am I treating these strings in a way that's Unicode clean? Am I dealing with – you have to think about all of them at the same time, yeah. and that's the real challenge. And, in fact, when I when I did code reviews, which I hated doing code reviews um, – 
the technique, the, the way I did it was I would make a list and I would say, these are the things that I want to look at. I want to make sure this, this, and this. And I'd make a separate pass for each one. I wouldn't try to look at the code and say, does this code do everything? I couldn't deal with that. Yeah. What instead is I would ignore everything and say, I'm just looking at this to see, are we good from a leak point of view? Yeah. And I'd look at everything and say, does it leak? And then I'd make a pass and say, are we good? Because that's the only way I knew how to do it, yeah. right? Otherwise, otherwise, I'm just looking at it, trying to rewrite it the way the original author did. And, and if the original author had so many things they were thinking about that they forgot one dimension, I'm going to repeat the same thing. I'm going to forget the same dimension. So, yeah. um so I think that's actually what the challenge of writing code is, is that you've got about 12 different things you got to think about when you write code yeah. that, oh, you got to be good for this, got to be good for this, got to be good for this. And that, no human can think that way. And that's why, that's why, as you were saying, you know, the, the, the security researchers are trying to go after the things you didn't think about. Yeah. Because the things you did think about, probably you did a, a relatively good job of that. Nobody's, nobody's going to be perfect, but, but if you were focused on that, it's unlikely there's huge mistakes. And then those one or two mistakes you're going to catch because you're also going to test to make sure you accomplished what you were thinking about, right? That that part of the code is good. And they're going to go after, did you even think about this? Yeah. And um, I, I remember um, on, on a certain product, I'm not going to mention the name because I thought it was pretty good overall, but but I was looking at at, uh, at at the passwords on something. Well, I guess we got a bug on this. And it was something weird was happening. And it turned out that the password system was fine, but the UI was getting tripped up. Uh, it would show, you know, dots for your passwords. And the way they were doing that was a little game they were playing internally. And so I went back to the tester and I said to her, I said, does your password start with a capital V? And she was really freaked out <laughs> because if it, it, the way they were, the way they were manipulating the, the characters you were typing in, if your password happened to start with a capital V, then instead of getting the dots, you would get an empty thing. Oh. And uh, that was the, you know, and so it just so happened that her password started with a capital V and she caught the one thing that would, you know, it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to affect the security at all. You weren't going to get in. It didn't affect anything. It was just the UI did the wrong thing if that was your password as you were typing it in. That's the kind of thing that, you know, nobody was thinking about that. They were thinking about the security. Oh. They weren't really, you know. Uh, those are the kinds of things, right? Yeah. And, and the thing is, I guess I remember when I started, uh, in, in this industry and then people would talk about making products that were bug free. Uh, why can't you make things that are bug free and, and trying to explain to people that, that the cost, even if you could do this, like, even if it was theoretically possible, uh, that the cost would be totally prohibited. It'd be so high to just find everything. It's, it's, uh, but, but we are at that, that same point now. Nobody believes you can make bug free software anymore. Everybody believes it is, uh, within acceptable levels, within what you think is okay. There will always be things you don't know anything about. There will always be things that can come in the future. You just kind of have to continuously work it. But, but security is the same way. And I have clients that come to me and they say, uh, oh, we want to be 100% safe. And, um, the problem is that, that you can't be 100% safe because you probably, where you have an issue is in the things that you didn't think about. So, so the thing is, there will always be some things that you didn't think about, but you might be lucky and nobody finds it. But one of the things that I talk about in my course, which I think is important and I think we know really, is making, um, making things safe under refactoring. Because even if you make it right, like even if you thought about everything, even if we go through all of the code review and everybody's happy with the code, 
then, you know, a year down the line, somebody has to add a feature, make a change. Uh, and suddenly one of your underlying assumptions that they didn't realize was there was broken. And it, it happens all the time. So it might be beneficial to document those underlying assumptions. I'm just saying that. Yeah, that might, uh... but oftentimes it's, it's like, and the thing is, and, and me and Phil were talking about earlier about documentation that we are we have a tendency to think that we document for other people, but oftentimes like that other person is just us in the future, uh, where we just pick up something we wrote last year and we go like, oh wow, what was I thinking? What was this? I, okay, how did this work? And the thing is, when we're sitting in front of it and we have everything in our heads, we think, oh, it's obvious, right? This is like how everything is. But a year down the line, when you don't have it all in there anymore, then you're like, hmm, how was this again? <laughs> so... There was another talk that I saw today, actually, um, given by a couple of developers who worked for the courts in, in Norway. And uh, they, they had one experience where they had to deal with uh, properties, that uh, ownership of properties, uh, like you know, houses. And there was one situation that actually brought down their whole system, where the property was actually owned by itself. And so, of course, you know, no one had, had thought this case would ever exist, so they got stuck in this endless loop and, and crashed their entire system. So, of course, they, they, they fixed it, and they, they put a test in that said something like, weird case where property owns itself that we've seen in production, <laughs> as the name of the test as a way to document that situation so nobody would ever yeah. overlook it again. I thought it was really nice. I still don't really know what it means. P- Peter Bindels from TomTom, he had um, a talk uh, on uh, GPS systems also yesterday. And and in what, in his answer to one of the questions, he said, uh, I, he said in one of the systems, you would have the system, it would crash if it took a right turn in a certain intersection. And he said that there was no way that they could know if there was no problem because... What was it? I, I don't remember his exact choice of words, but I think he said something like, the world is really big. <laughs> <laughs> there are lots of places where you and, can take right turns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and it's true, right? Yeah. It's like, yep. there are other right turns in the world. I, the <laughs> left turn should be fine, though. Who would ever want to take a left turn? <laughs> exactly. You can implement it in terms of right turns anyway. That's right. All right. Um, well, it sounds like you guys have had a lot of fun. Well, actually, we were talking about your presentation was was the keynote a similar subject? You said you did a keynote and then you did something today. Was that the same topic? Yeah. No. Uh, well, the, the the talk today was uh, was uh, related to my training, but the keynote was wasn't really. Uh, the keynote was uh, related to more of my. Uh, my, I guess we could call it activism uh, <laughs> that I've been doing in Norway, where um, it started, uh, oh, well, two years ago now, uh, more than two years, uh, where I I started uh, writing uh, about uh, the Norwegian election system and and wanting to to ask for data and reports to try to figure out the security of of, of Norwegian election systems and. Uh, and uh, over time, it has become like a big thing here in Norway. So I've been on TV and newspapers and stuff, even on the radio, that which I thought was fun. Cause... Well, okay, so before we get in the actual subject of it, was this your first keynote? Well, I did a keynote at CPP on C as well, but it wasn't in the beginning. So it, it kind of felt different uh, because it was in the end of the day, whereas this, this one was like the first one that people uh, go to. So, So for me, it was different. Okay. Yeah, so we call it a plenary. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's called a plenary there. And this one is like, yeah, it was the first thing that everybody got. But it counts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
so so yeah, I guess I guess it was my first keynote. Yeah. Well, it doesn't sound like it was. It sounds like your second. It was the first opening keynote. <laughs> but I'm not sure an opening <laughs> keynote is necessarily. I, 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 it, perhaps you have more pressure on you. I guess uh, expectations are really high or something like that. I don't know. But I mean, you know, to me. Uh, a closing keynote can have just as much expectations. So, yeah. uh, you know, after seeing all these other speakers, now they're going to say, okay, hey, now you're going to say something special. And that might say, well, that's putting a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah. Now you have to beat everything that's been that's before. Right. And that's also right. when everybody is mentally exhausted. Yes. Now we're going to have you, you get to follow all these other speakers, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. Um, no, but it, I, I, it was fun, and, but it's also a little bit of like pressure on me here because I'm talking about elections in Norway, but also yeah, I call- let's talk about the subject then. Okay, actually, be- before we do talk about that, yeah. uh, I did a little poll yesterday um, on the channel. <laughs> yeah, uh, just before yeah. the show was going to be, I said who would like to hear about mm-hmm. electronic voting, <laughs> and I'm not sure we got reliable results because. Um, who, who can trust us? So, so I think we'll just go with it. So um, so is the Norwegian system using electronic voting? No. Uh, no, it's not. Are you advocating for that? Or no. are you just advocating for better auditing of the non-electronic voting? No. Well, the, the, basically, um, the, the, the state of, of things uh, it took a while to actually unearth the facts because it was very hard to get the state to actually tell us uh, and to give the information. But uh, what was what was the state uh, two years ago? Was that we, yeah we we vote on paper ballots in Norway, but slowly but surely, behind the scenes they had been introducing uh, computers to count the ballots, uh, and there was no no audit of the count, uh, no audit of the software either, uh, no audit of anything really, um, and and this had been done basically. Uh, while all of all Norwegians thought that uh, ballots were counted manually, they actually uh, a large portion was counted b- only by computers. And so then the question was, okay, but what kind? Of, well, there were many questions I was asking. Basically, uh, what kind of computers? What kind of system is this? Do you have any reports on the security? Have you done anything? And basically, it turns out it was basically random. <laughs> Windows machines, you, you were allowed uh, on a local level to basically reuse computers you had lying around, like normal desktop, laptop, Windows machines, uh, and then some kind of table scanner that you would connect by USB to this thing. And that's, and then you downloaded some software from, uh, from, uh, from the, the directorate for elections to run there. Um, and there wasn't, uh, there hadn't been really any evaluation of the security of the system, uh, and they were all online, uh, of course. Uh, and um, and then it turns out slowly but surely we realize that this is it's actually quite a lot of the votes. In the end, probably around half of the votes in Norway were only going to be counted by computers, with no audit of any kind. And, uh, and slowly but surely, uh, it, more and more of this, uh, became apparent, especially the, the fact that it was, uh, on the internet, which wasn't something I'd even, like in my first, first time I wrote in the paper, I didn't even ask if it was on the internet because I just assumed it wasn't. Nobody so, would be that stupid, right? <laughs> yeah, so it didn't even occur to me. So, <laughs> so, so basically what I've been doing is basically asking for information and then, and then, uh, then telling people the state of things and, uh, and asking to, to get data and, uh, basically just asking questions, uh, a lot 
And um, the answers I got, apparently they didn't want to give them to me because they didn't have any answers, but I didn't know that at the time. So, uh, and so, so basically they've been, uh, they've been, uh, getting their act together. So they've been having uh, security audits and they've done penetration testings. And uh, But the most important thing is that they didn't have any audit of the count. And that's something that I was working very hard, that we need some way to check if the computers are actually uh, producing the right results. And uh, and this year, after, after there was... Um, I don't know what the English word for it is. They put out a proposal. Uh, the government puts out a proposal and then anyone can uh, write uh, an answer to it or say what they think about it. And so I wrote uh, my answer and then basically all of Norway's uh, different municipalities wrote their answer. And it was basically me against 200 other organizations. <laughs> Because they are all, and I think this is our fault as an industry, because they were all, uh, why can't we trust computers? And, 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 and that's sort of how we train people. We train people to think that computers are impartial, that they are, are infallible, that they, how could a computer make a mistake? And then it's just like, no, the computer, well, the computer can make a mistake, yes. But we can also make the computer do other things. A computer is not objective. A computer is colored by whoever makes the software, even the hardware. And, and we're not very good at teaching the population in general this. And so it's, it became a lot of, of, of the issue was just teaching people how, how, how do computer. <laughs> but in the end, uh, I wrote, I wrote it. I didn't think that anybody would listen to me, but, um, this year and this winter, uh, they passed uh, new regulations in Norway, uh, which was against everybody's will, but mine, basically. <laughs> and, and it says, uh, that all ballots in Norway have to be counted manually at least once. So now we have one preliminary manual count uh, and maybe a, a machine counted uh, result as well. But then at least we have two numbers. We can compare them to each other. We can do some kind of evaluation. Currently, there is no procedure uh, for handling um, if these two numbers don't match. Uh, but that's my next uh that's my next goal. We need to have some way of, of handling irregularities if they happen and and uh, propagating information and, and handling it in real time because an election is a real-time event. Uh, you have data flowing from all over the country and, and things are being added up and numbers are being presented on TV and candidates are, are accepting results and not accepting results based on live information. And so we also need to propagate uh, any kind of, of uh, event. It has to be also be propagated live uh, or we're going to have a problem. Uh, so... Yeah. So the yeah, it's it's a work in progress. <laughs> that sounds like fun, and it also sounds like it's it's related to your security work as well, right? Yeah. You have a bit of a um, a skepticism about systems when you when you get into security work because because that's if you don't have that mindset, you're going to be vulnerable to. I mean, this is one of the things that I have sometimes when I ask people. I more or less assume they're going to do something the way I would think it needed to be done. Yeah. So I don't say, well, how do you verify this? Because I just assume, well, if I were doing it, I'd verify it like this. And I assume you're doing the same thing yeah. only to find out later. Oh no, we don't do that. We just write this down and then we come along later and do it. It's like, but you don't verify that that's going to work. No, we just, we just write it down. 
No, I, I have, I had several, but I do the same. And that was, yeah, that was yeah. also some of the funny parts of this. Like, like I, 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 I ask questions and I get the data and I go like, what? You do what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I wasn't even expecting, like, like for example, in Norway we have three uh, companies that are allowed to install uh, these. Um, uh, you can do it yourself in, in, like, locally in your your precinct. You can install computers to do this, but you can also hire firms to do this. And there are three that are licensed by the directorate to come and install uh, these uh, counting things for you. Uh, but it turns out that two out of three of these companies are not Norwegian. They're foreign companies. So we have foreign companies that come into Norway and install and, and do everything, set all of the software, everything up. They even repackaged the software that got, they got from the directorate. So you can't even check the signature anymore. And, and, and then, then they install this. And I was like, oh my God, what? So basically you're just, are, are any of these people security clearance? And it's like, no, they're not. They don't have security clearance. They're mostly not Norwegian. And I'm like, what? Okay, so you're having foreign nationals coming in and installing all of the software and hardware that's going to count like half of the votes in Norway. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, uh, okay. And then I, I'm reading through some of these contracts. And this is like, it takes a lot of time because I have to read like all sorts of things that they, they end up giving me. And so I'm reading through the contracts and then I'm reading, yeah. And then you have like the premium tier from one of these companies. And the premium tier includes remote support and i'm like and then i'm reading like what no they have remote access to the computers <laughs> that are counting the votes uh, to make sure it's working right i can't i <laughs> this well, is like uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's it sounds it sounds to me like you're not being skeptical enough you seem to think that because <laughs> yes, someone's yes. norwegian that they wouldn't want to tamper with the votes no uh, uh, i don't know uh, I, just, I i think I, that you should your skepticism shouldn't be about foreigners. It should be about human beings because human beings have their own agenda and that's the issue. And th But that's the thing. The, the thing is nobody was suspicious of anything. And I was just yeah. asking like questions because I wanted to know how it worked and I wanted to see that they got all their, their ducks in a row. I expected right, right. that they had all their ducks in a row. So I was continuously shocked on, on exactly how lax it was, exactly how much they hadn't really considered the security of the counting system at all. Uh, and that was really shocking to me. Uh, and it just shocked me again and again, realizing that there had literally not been a single person who had considered this problem at all. And, uh, yeah, no. So, so yeah, I, I, I might have been naive, but at least I kept on asking questions. So <laughs> I got my data in the end. <laughs> Fortunately, uh, election meddling is not something that happens. No, I, and uh, but the good thing is now we've we've got gotten some good legislation in place. Um, I'm I'm hopeful for the future. Of course, we also at the same time now have a, an, a commission that is uh, that is doing research for a future election law, and they've had several meetings talking about internet voting. So I I see a fight in my future. <laughs> yeah, I was saying uh, before the, before the show, I was saying I I don't. I don't, I don't understand how you could possibly have an auditable online or electronic voting system that doesn't, in fact, simply reveal what everyone voted for. I mean, that's the only way you could do it, is that I can look up and I can say, it says John Cal voted this way. And I could look at that and I could say, okay, I don't know how everybody else voted, but 
it's accurately reflecting me. But of course, that's not the way we want our voting system to work. You want to have uh, you want to have that kind of voting privacy. And yeah. given that, how can you possibly audit and say, well, obviously it counted the votes as they came in? You'd have no way of knowing that. Uh, you could write a, a very subtle thing that says, I accurately reflect all the votes that happened, but I'm biased this way so that every third vote for that candidate, I actually put on the other candidate. And there is no way to look at the results of that. I mean, you just... You just can't have a third party look at this and say it has they're to trying be like all the blockchain boys all over the world. They're trying uh, that that's basically you have a lot of people uh, for, like from type uh, Bitcoin blockchain backgrounds who are coming in here and they are uh, trying to do all sorts of cryptographical tricks uh, and reshuffling and all sorts of things. But the thing is, in the end. No matter how much you make something that, and until now we haven't really seen anything that is sound, but even let's say that you have a system. Imagine I make a system, you audit it, you are completely convinced it is completely correct. On election day, how do you know what is running? How do you know that what I showed you is actually what is running? Actually, a, a blockchain could be used in such a way if you could anonymously distribute IDs so that the individual could say, I'm going to look up my ID. No one else yeah, knows who that person is, but I know this. Yeah, one. but you're breaking another part of election security because Which now you can prove what you voted. And if you can prove what you voted, now people can coerce you to vote against your conscience because they can check that you did what you were supposed to. But also people can pay you. So now you can sell your vote because you have the uh, possibility of proving that you s- voted the way that they paid you to vote. So, so this is, this, this goes against another part of election security, which is basically the vote selling and coercion, uh, uh, and persecution. So there's, so the thing is that everyone wants to put lots of computers in this, but when it comes to it, like manual election, manual ballot counting, and paper ballots is a really simple system that is secure in the way that it relies on, on, on lots of people. So to be able to manipulate a, 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 an election that is based on paper ballots and people, you need a conspiracy because you need so many people to be a part of it, to be able to flip an election. They need to be distributed on many physical locations and they need to be physically present. And that's very risky. Instead of if you have a computerized system, if you are able to... You you can even do it remotely. And you often have a single point or very few points of failure. And it might be enough to get just one point to flip an entire election because you have control over so many votes at the same time. Uh, and, and so, and so I've described tons of attacks to, to the government here on how I could manipulate an election as a private citizen, as one person. And, and some of them are super simple. Like in Norway, we had paper ballots. And so you pick, and in Norway, it's, it's quite simple system. So the paper ballot is basically one per party because we vote for a party. And so the party, uh, so party name will be on top of the ballot and then you select the party that you want. Uh, and, and that now you have the paper ballot and you put it in a box and that's, that's your vote. Uh, but the thing is the computers that were counting the votes, they weren't reading the text on the ballot. They were reading a number in the corner. 
So, so I, so I tell them, okay, fine. I can make this as, this is just paper, right? <laughs> I can print paper. Uh, and all I can do is I'll, I'll print a party that I don't like. I will print like a, a few thousand, which has the number of the party I want, but the name of the party that they'll vote for. And then I'll just distribute it on all of the, in, in lots of polling locations. And, uh, uh and I'll go home. <laughs> Just, right, 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 right. Yeah, <laughs> because the thing is, nobody's actually auditing that, and the, the way it was, nobody was actually auditing the results. So, so nobody was actually looking at the ballots, and everybody was like, "Yeah, but we have paper ballots. We can check. Yeah, you can check, but nobody actually checks. So it doesn't really matter if you can check as long as nobody's actually checking. And so I said I could easily flip an election in Norway just by paper." It's like the most low-tech hack in the world. Uh, and now I said it on the internet. So now everybody fix your election systems. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am certain that people wanting to affect uh, uh, ballot outcomes are all listening to the CPU. Yeah. <laughs> um, but getting this back to, to C++, are there any um, any features that people are talking about either for 20 or for 23 that you uh, find particularly interesting uh, from a security point of view, either um, making security easier or making security harder. Well, I have I have two two things that I have been thinking about, and I've been talking about a little bit on the internet. And and one of them, uh, some people say that there might be a proposal already, and that is uh, memset underscore s, which is in Appendix K for C eleven. Uh, it's one of, uh, but uh, I'd really like to 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 get it into uh, to 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 twenty. Uh, just that one function, not the whole Annex K. Uh, there's lots of stuff in there, uh, but uh, memset underscore s because currently today uh, this is uh, an unsolved problem because what what the problem with memset in the security context is that you will often have some kind of secret in memory, maybe a password, maybe a key, something like that. And you want to keep it in memory only for the portion of time where you're using it. And the moment you're not using it anymore, you would like to to remove it from memory just in case, you know, something later can dump the memory or something later can retrieve it somehow. So you want to keep that that time period as short as possible. And what they do is then that when they're done using this memory for this secret, uh, then they try to, to erase it from memory by, by writing zeros over it or whatever. Um, and of course, because nothing then reads it, the compiler looks at that and says, you're doing a write exactly. that you never read from, so the write can be optimized away. Yes. And, um, yes. and security people tend to not like this. And this has... It's, but it also, the problem was that it used to, right? It used, the compiler used to leave it in. (laughs) And, and even worse, if you compile in debug, that memset is still there. So as a developer, you're compiling in debug, you check, even if you go on Godbolt, it's right there. The memset is right there. If you go and you check your memory, like actually go in and physically look at the memory, in debug, it's zeroed out. It's only in an optimized build and only with newer compilers. And the problem then becomes that this was a hidden bug, like in lots of places, uh, that, that ended up having security, uh, uh, issues because of a, a recompile with a newer compiler. 
and so and and we don't have a cross-platform solution for this. Uh, there's there's many attempts on many different platforms, but today there is no no uh, cross-platform solution. And um, so I'd really I'd really like uh, is there a, it is if there a we... solution coming from the new approach to volatile? So the classic approach to volatile has been that we say that a, an object is volatile, meaning we can't optimize reads and writes. And that's an interesting and simple model, but it's not how processors actually work because a processor doesn't really think of, oh, this memory location is volatile and I won't optimize reads or writes. Instead, every individual read or write is treated separately. So it's up to the compiler to say, this is a read or write to this thing, and I therefore can't optimize it away because the thing is volatile. But I think the new approach with what they're trying to introduce, and I'm not, I haven't read the proposal, but I think the new approach is to try to say, we're not going to say that, that objects are volatile. Instead, we're going to say, this particular operation is volatile. I want you to do it no matter what, even if you think it could be optimized away. That approach would allow you to say, I want to make a bunch of volatile writes mm -hmm. to this memory, and I'm going to write zero to all this memory, and it's a volatile write, which says... Even if the compiler can prove it's never used, it still has to do it. That approach, I think, would be okay. A, yeah, a no, that yeah, approach. yeah, definitely. That sounds really interesting. Right. Yes, definitely. I would uh, be super happy uh, if we solve that problem. Okay, okay then right. I have my second issue. <laughs> No, because I did it in my presentation today. Because uh, if you gets um, gets is is in a CW a common vulnerability and a weakness enumeration, uh, it has its own basically its own number. Uh, it's called uh, uh, inherently dangerous function. And gets is deprecated. Uh, it's uh, you get lots of warnings. It's basically considered this is basically a stack overflow waiting to happen. I'm sorry. What 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 do you guess? Gets. Gets oh, like get, get, oh, get with an okay, S gets. afterwards. Okay, I, I'm like sorry. puts, like puts, right, but right, gets. Right. It is. It is a. <laughs> yeah. It is a. Yeah. It is a stack overflow waiting to happen. There's no yeah. safe way to implement gets. You can't put gets in. Yeah. No, but the thing is, what I showed in my, my, my presentation today is that you can use C in into a stack allocated array with the exact same effect, and you don't even get a warning. Uh and and that is something I want. I want it. I want there to be a warning. If you use C in to read into a stack allocated array, I want there to be a warning or or a truncated. I don't care, but at least a warning, some kind of diagnostic that will say, okay, this wasn't as good of an idea as you well, thought it was. Well, the standard doesn't doesn't actually uh, doesn't deal in warnings, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it simply says something's either so legal I, or it's not. And if it's illegal, uh, the, the, the standard can say that a diagnosis is required or that a diagnostic is not required, mm -hmm. but, it, but it actually doesn't deal with one. Well, I think having C in reading into stack allocated array is a stack overflow waiting to happen. It is just how can even the user know you shouldn't type more than X characters? Uh, are you going to give them a little like text string? Like don't write more than eight characters because then I will have undefined behavior. That it doesn't make sense. Well, they won't know what undefined behavior is. So what you'll have to say is, don't type in more no. than eight characters, or your cat will get pregnant. That's guaranteed to be people yeah, saying, go. "I, I got to see how this works." Right? <laughs> yeah, 
the, the one we need we need we need your, your we need your 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 uh, your warning the one you read in the beginning is like yeah your neighbors can attack you and that's right your neighbors can attack you and, and ask please work please ask workmen for id that's yeah there you go all right um so uh so i'm not sure exactly uh, no i think um get s is probably and i think people have recognized that for a while um yes and i'm not sure yeah. on the on the cn cn is also kind of a little bit a little bit scary just in general uh, um i'm not sure you know we have had people talking about um uh what what's the the author of of the format library. Victor Zerovich, who we had on just last time. Victor, Victor. Oh. Yeah, that's what I was trying to think of, Victor. Um, so he he was on, and and yeah, I think input is just way, 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 way harder than output. Output's, output's not easy. <laughs> Getting output right, no. that's hard. But but that's child's yeah. play compared to input. Input's got its own set of... <laughs> and and the, and the thing is, right now, like this, this semester, I'm, I'm substituting for a professor teaching C at uh, at a college in Oslo, and uh, and it's made me think a lot about how we teach. Like how, do, like now I'm teaching C, but it also makes me think about how we teach C plus plus. Because one of the first things that we do whenever we teach anybody programming is, okay, so here you have two numbers, then you add them together. That's like one of the first things they do, and then they have to write that out. Okay, and then they have to, and then they always make a program where they read in a number, <laughs> and then they have strings that they have to read in, and it's like we basically in C plus plus. If we start the same way, we're putting them in one of our most dangerous corners from day one. Well, no, not if not if you're reading into a string, and I think this is one of the one of the issues that Bjarne has said is. You know, everybody knows the first the first program you write is is hello world, but the second program is essentially what is your name, hello you, right? And and he points out that that if you do this with STD string, this can be safe. Yeah. Uh, when you say it in C, there's no way to do this in a safe way. No. Um, in C, but 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 even adding two numbers together, like in in C plus plus, you're you're very quickly in undefined behavior land right. and that or even or multiplying two numbers and this is something that if you're coming from any kind of other programming language they haven't even imagined this was an issue right and uh, right. it's not even it doesn't even occur to them that this is an issue right. uh and and so that is a, like as a teaching perspective that is it, it means we 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 have to start talking about undefined behavior from the beginning and maybe we should. <laughs> no, no, I, I think we should. I think we should because it's a very important. Yeah. Um, I think people talk about undefined behavior as some evil thing. And I think we should explain, no, undefined behavior is what makes our programs run fast. It's by yeah. saying, you stay away from these things. If you write this, we can make this fast. If you want to write this, we can't, we can't deliver it fast. And so we don't even try. And so we don't say what will happen if yeah. you do that. So don't do that. And, and you're right. We, we, should, we should do that very early on. Maybe not the first day, but very early on. <laughs> but it was funny. I asked on, when I got this job because it was an emergency thing uh, because the previous professor uh, had an emergency, and so uh, so I asked on Twitter like, what are the things that you thought was the hardest when learning C? Uh, and I would say probably ninety percent of everyone who answered said pointers, 
anything to do with pointers, basically. And then you had 10% who said that they thought pointers was, were fine. And all of those people, they came to see from assembly. And so for them, okay, pointers, oh, yeah, that's how you do addresses. <laughs> That's the syntax for that. And and for them, that was they have the mental model. But what I'm seeing now with like people coming from higher level uh, programming languages to C, they're coming from languages that have a C-like syntax, but are totally different in, 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 uh, in semantics. And so when they land in C, they think they know what they're doing <laughs> because it looks familiar, right? Yeah, I've 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 often felt like uh, one. I've I've seen people who introduce some new language that they think solves a lot of problems, but in order to make it familiar, they use the C syntax. And I think the C syntax is one of the biggest problems with C. It's it's nice and concise, but it has it it, it isn't a well designed syntax. Um, and, but and but I think it's that spread it's, so far now yeah, that yeah, it's yeah. like no, I yeah. think that using the equal sign to mean assignment is convenient, but it breaks what assign what equals means. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I think laughing at literally centuries of mathematical notation is is not a good idea. Just yeah. ignoring that and saying, "Oh, we're not going to do that anymore." Um, so I. I no, I'm sympathetic with that. Actually, I think it was it was Joel Joel Onsplosky who essentially says there are there are two concepts in in at least in beginning computer science that are the hard things. You you can teach any group of of young students basically how to write code, even how to write loops. It's all they can understand it. It's all, but when you start talking about pointers and when you start talking about recursion. Those are the two yeah. operations that separate people who really can become programmers from people who are going to have, you know, going to have to work for a living, right? <laughs> and off by one errors. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, that's what I said, those two things. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, thank but you, both thank of you those for setting me up for that one. <laughs> what? Well, yeah, no, it was a good one. Uh, no, both of those things, like I've, I've, I've been trying to teach, uh, for a while, uh, both, uh, yeah, professionally and, uh, and privately. And, and, and both of those things, uh, often benefit from having a, a mental model, which matches more how a computer actually is. Right. And I, and very often when we teach higher level programming, uh, we don't teach them how it works. Uh, and right. so, especially like w things like recursion, understanding that the state of this function call is kept someplace while you are calling the, itself again, and now you have a new set of local state. And this, the moment you teach people about like a stack and how and and stack frames, mm -hmm. then this suddenly clicks and, and people were like, oh, okay. And then I returned, yeah, then I actually popped that off and then now I'm in this context. And then suddenly it makes sense. But we, but often we try to teach without teaching the underlying, um, underlying computer. I, I remember that I actually, I actually didn't learn C until after I had done some assembly language programming. And when I realized, oh, there's a special increment operator, it made perfect sense because yeah. the computer has special increment hardware. Yeah. But I think had I come from that otherwise, I said, why is there something special to add one to something? Why isn't there something special to add two to something? Why is yeah. one special? Right. Well, yeah. you know, if you uh, if you 
if you understand what the computer the, at the lower level is doing, we realize there's almost always special hardware to do those kinds of increments. So yeah. why not have a special, it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think, you know, one of the things that, um, Alex Stepanoff said in a panel, I think this was a panel of people from a number of different languages. And I don't know if he was trying to be provocative, but he said, essentially, he said, the only two languages you really should, you should, that are really worthy of any kind of study are C and C++. And the reason is that these are the languages that try to model what the machine is yeah. instead of create a, an artificial world of what the machine should be. And, uh, and I, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, I, I, I've talked to people who said, um, we, we, I, I remember a specific situation where someone was having a particular a particular kind of bug was happening and in talking to the to the to the engineers about what was going on none of them actually understood how the machine worked yeah. they simply understand how the language presented the machine yeah. and and so if it failed in some in some interesting way they had no clue why that might actually fail and of course because because he had done more than i don't want to say it was java i don't even know what language they were talking about but but he had an outside world of what what was actually happening yeah. with the hardware and he was essentially trying to get them to see this is the cause of the bug and they just couldn't see it at all because they didn't understand how the machine actually works. Yeah. They only understood how the virtual machine worked yeah. and the virtual machine, you know, didn't have this failure. It was failing at, at, at kind of a lower level. The virtual machine wasn't actually, I don't want to say it's a bug in the virtual machine, but the, but the situation was happening because the virtual machine was doing something that you wouldn't expect of it, but you would expect if you understood what the hardware underneath. Was. Yeah. And we have mental so models, right? We we try to to when we're when we're imagining the execution of our program, we do have mental models. And if those mental models are too simplistic or lacking in detail, then we end up processing it wrong in our heads, and it doesn't match the real world. And and any kind of abstraction will be leaky, and there will be things that are bubbling through that that might not match this perfect world. But but I think that happened to us as well. Uh, speaking of, of modeling the machine uh, with the Spectre and Meltdown, uh, because suddenly our low-level assembly was not so low-level anymore. <laughs> we yeah, had, yeah. And, and, and that was very interesting because suddenly I sat there feeling like, like assembly is really a high-level programming language. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, with, with today's modern programmers, it is. <laughs> Yeah. That was fun. All models are wrong. Some are useful. Yeah. I, I'm blaming this entirely on you, Patricia. You've got me all excited. I want to. I want to start talking about this a lot more. But we've run out of time, and unfortunately, I have a hard thing because I got conference stuff that I've got to do, and I've got deadlines that I've got to meet. So I've got to call somebody, and so I. I uh, I guess. I guess we'll have to have you back, Patricia. And you can get me all wound up again. Um, but. Uh, um, but uh, traditionally, we end the show by uh, encourage. Actually, I should say this: um, Do you have any last words? I want to. I don't want to cut it off. I got to get out of here. But um, Bill, do you have anything you want to say, or uh, or Patricia, uh, any parting thoughts? Well, I, I I do training, so hire me. I do consulting, so <laughs> I should be better at the marketing <laughs> part of this business. So. <laughs> It sounds to me like it sounds to me like you got that priority in there. <laughs> How about you, Phil? Can they hire you to do uh, consulting and training too? They absolutely can. I also do conferences, <laughs> and I just really briefly wanted to mention that we've um, just announced the keynote speakers for C plus plus on C: uh, Hannah Disikova and uh, Walter Brown. Hey. And uh, and tickets are on sale, so I'll put a link in the show notes ah, for that. But that's cool. We'll talk about it a bit more next next time, maybe. Excellent. 
Excellent. I'm looking forward to seeing them both in just a week and a half. I'm really excited to see them. Um, so, uh, so that sounds great. And it's not February next year. It's June. June. That's right. Ooh, yeah. Awesome. yeah. Dates announced already. June. But it's, but it's not too early to get tickets. Is that what you're saying? Tickets are on sale now. In fact, super early bird tickets, which won't last long. Ooh. So get them while they're hot. Get them while they're hot. Okay. Uh, we traditionally end the show by wishing everyone um, safe coding. And in particular, I think that's appropriate. Yes. So can you join us for this, Patricia, yes. and say, uh, please, everyone, safe coding. Please, everyone. Secure coding. Secure coding. <laughs>